If you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app, but join me, if you will, in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Now, I wonder here this morning if anyone enjoys waiting. Is there anyone who loves to wait? You know, over the last few months, we have uh, experienced a lot of waiting outside of stores, outside of restaurants, and we have a picture here this morning of this, but most of us have experienced this. Uh, I typically go to Sam's Club at least once a week, but at one point, about a month ago or so, the lines were getting so long just to get into the store, it was taking over an hour. I'm talking about more than 50 people outside of a store just waiting to get in, and, and the line wasn't moving very fast at all. In fact, one day, it was so cold and so raining outside that I, I figured there probably wasn't going to be very many people in line outside. And so I drive past and I'm thinking, uh, you know, this is going to be the chance that I'm going to maybe have to go in and get a few things that I need. And sure enough, I get there and there's not very many people outside. There's like 10 people in line. So I go and I get in line and the line is moving so slowly that it takes 45 minutes to just get into the store. It was so frustrating and I thought, you know, uh, this is why I just drive right on by when I see a line outside, any line that's outside. I don't like to wait, and I don't think that I'm alone in this. I don't think that most people really like to wait. uh, We don't live in a patient society. We don't live as a patient people. We, We have learned to expect things to happen immediately. We get irritated when the internet is too slow, when we have to wait in traffic, when it takes like three days to deliver a package that we've ordered. We want things to happen, and we want them to happen right now. We want results. Of course, waiting becomes more challenging if we feel desperate or if our situation really is desperate. If you find yourself in desperation, the last thing that you really want to do is to wait. Desperation has this tendency to heighten our sense of urgency When we are desperate, it highlights the fact that we are out of control, that we can't make the situation change. In fact, we we might be willing to do things or to act in certain ways that we normally wouldn't do because we're so desperate. Sometimes we just kind of lose our minds. Maybe the most difficult things for us to do is to wait on the Lord in the midst of our desperation. And in those times, we can feel, we we can even see the characteristics in ourselves that are not very attractive. It's a very difficult thing to come to the place where we yield our desire for control, the control of things, over to Him, to let God be God and not us, to let God do what only He can do in His time, in His way, the, the way that He chooses. It's very difficult to do this because we don't like to wait. Well, the psalmist, the, the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, um, we're going to be, it speaks about this, it speaks about waiting on the Lord, and I know that we don't like to hear this, but there are lessons that we can learn as we wait upon the Lord. There are things that he wants to teach us as we wait, and what we're going to see is that there is a hope that God gives us that enables us to wait. How, how can we wait and have hope as we wait? Desperation is not a new thing for the people of God. 
the things that we are experiencing right now in our country and in our world today are not new events. In fact, desperation is something that God has used as a way to refine people over and over and over again in order to make us into the people that He desires us to be. And so uh, these experiences that we're going through right now in our lives are preparing us for the future, preparing us for eternity. For those of you who've been with us over the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months, uh, you know that we're in the midst of a sermon series uh, on the Psalms of Ascent called On the Way. These are a group of 15 songs, a playlist that, that was sung by the people of Israel in ancient times as they made their way from their homes and their villages up to Jerusalem in order to worship God together at the temple. Now, these songs were not uh, only uh, for times as they were traveling to Jerusalem, but these became kind of like a guidebook for their pilgrimage through life. And as we talked about these songs, these songs are not just important for them back then in their day, but this is important for us today as well as we make our journey to our heavenly Jerusalem. I want to go ahead and read Psalm 130 for us today. But, but as we read this, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, there are four stanzas in this psalm. And that's kind of, what's kind of unique here is that in each of these stanzas, there is the word Lord or the name Lord is used twice in each of these stanzas. That means that the word Lord appears eight different times in these eight verses. And so you can kind of guess who the focus is on, right? The emphasis is on the Lord and his work and his power and his presence. But then secondly, you'll notice as we read this that the first six verses, uh, the, the first three stanzas, they're written in the first person and you'll read things like, I cry to you and hear my voice, my soul waits, I hope. It, it's all of these things in the first person. It, it's like you're hearing someone's personal prayer. One person is praying for the entire group, and then you get to the last ver two verses, the last stanza, and the prayer turns toward the whole group. And what we see there is that there is encouragement for everyone because of the experience of this one person, which I think is really helpful for us to remember as we study through the Psalms together, uh, and this particular Psalm together, and as we think about our lives the work of God in your life is not only for your life. God is working, and He has a work that He wants to do in your life, but it's not just for you. One of the great mysteries of God's working in your life is that He is using that work that He's doing in you in order to encourage other people as well. And so I want you to notice these things as we read through Psalm 130 together. But here's what the psalmist writes. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who, would say, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. 
And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Now, I don't know about you, about what your family is like, but for our family, what we like to do to relax, to, to find time to unwind, when we think about vacation, usually it has something to do with water. Whether it be going to a hotel swimming pool or whether it be going to a lake, going to a beach, running down a big sand dune into a uh, big body of cold water. I mean, uh, riding on jet skis or riding on a boat, uh, maybe even just fishing. These are the things that we love to do as a family when we get a chance. In fact, I have a picture this morning of Sue and the boys and they're out on this small inland lake in Michigan. This picture was taken a couple of years ago when we were on vacation at this cottage that's been in Sue's family over the last number of generations now. But we were out on this lake and we're we're taking turns riding on this jet ski and we are just having a blast for hours, days. My my family, our family, our, our kids, we love to be out on the water. But that's not what everyone throughout history has always felt. In fact, historically, many people have not liked to be out on the water, have not liked to be out on the sea. That's certainly true for the people of Israel. You never read in the Old Testament the Israelites saying, hey, you know what, let's go down to the beach and jump in the ocean. Why is that? Well, it's because you can't control the ocean waters. The weather can turn really bad without warning. The, the wind and the waves can start, uh, the wind can start blowing. The waves can start crashing all around you. It is a place that can turn deadly very quickly. If those waves come crashing down on top of you and you begin to be overwhelmed by the waves and you start sinking beneath them and you go down, down, down really deep into the water, it, it could seem like you're never going to get out. In fact, If you are down in the depths, you might not get out. Now, this wasn't just the mindset of the Israelites. Um, This, even in our own hemisphere, was a way that many ancient cultures had a view of things. If you go down to Mexico, down to the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, you can still see some of the underground caves that the Mayans used to have. These underground caves were like a waterway system, and the Mayans, they feared these caves. Uh, to, to go down into these places would be like entering a whole different world, a scary world, a world that would, be, uh, that, that would do great harm to you. And so I want you to just think about that view of water As you read that verse 1 again, and it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalmist calls out to God as the one, as one who is overwhelmed, as someone who is sinking into the depths of the sea, which is a scary place to be in life. Of course, no one wants to be in that place. No one wants to feel like they are drowning. No one wants to be in the depths, and yet... It's in the depths and from the depths that often we learn our greatest lessons. Charles Spurgeon, he was such a wordsmith, he he says this so concisely, but he says, deep places beget deep devotion. Deep places beget deep devotion. That when you are overwhelmed and at the end of yourself, it causes you to cling to something that really matters. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're in the depths that 
your livelihood has been taken away and you feel like you're sinking. Maybe uh, there, there is some kind of fear that you're experiencing because of the circumstances that are going on around you where you're just feeling like the waves are crashing down on top of you and you're going down. You're going to drown. Maybe the news is just making you feel overwhelmed. You can't even listen to the news anymore. Maybe you're a kid here this morning and you are struggling right now because you are used to doing certain things and the normal way of life isn't really happening anymore. You're not able to do those things right now. You feel desperate. You feel like you are in the depths. Well, I want you to notice what the psalmist does here when he is in this overwhelming place. The psalmist cries out to the Lord. He doesn't try to fix the problem himself. In fact, he realizes that he can't fix the problem by himself. And if you've ever been in the water and you feel like you're going down, you feel like you're going to sink, what do you do? Well, you cry out for some help. And that's exactly what the psalmist does here. Listen again to verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist prays, the psalmist pleads for God's mercy. One of the things that these times of desperation teach us is that they teach us to know the Lord. And when you know the Lord, you know that there are times when he alone uh, is your help, when he alone is the one who can rescue you. And the plea for his mercy becomes your constant prayer. In fact, sometimes we don't even know how to verbalize what we need. We don't know how to pray how to pray or what to pray for. And so we just pray for God's mercy because we know that God is a God of mercy. I want to assure you that when we pray, Lord, have mercy that he hears. That's a prayer that God longs to answer. So the beginning of this psalm, we we find that the psalmist is just overwhelmed. In his desperation, he cries out to the Lord because he knows that the Lord gives mercy. And so that's what he asks for. But, But as we move into the second stanza here, there's an interesting thing that happens. Because it's oftentimes in the depths that we become acutely aware of our own sinfulness, of our own failures. We cannot fix the situation that we are in. And it might even be the result of our own actions that we are in the depths in the first place. But listen, it is, that's not a bad realization to come to. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction in the time of trial can actually be a gift from God. Imagine if you lived without any conviction of sin. If you had no fear of God. If there was nothing that would make you stop and consider what you're thinking, what you're saying, what you're doing... It would be a terrible place to be if there was nothing that would move you to a place of repentance. And so conviction is actually a gift from God because it moves us to experience forgiveness and a right relationship with God. Now, God brings conviction. But I think it's important for us to understand that God, here that God doesn't bring condemnation upon His people. Condemnation, it's kind of like a a whip that Satan uses in order to beat us down, in order to strike us with it. He he tries to convince us that God is fed up with us, that God is giving up on us, that he is done with us. But friends, I want you to understand that that's a lie. Don't believe the voice of condemnation. 
Condemnation will drive you away from God. But conviction will lead you to Him. The psalmist brings, uh, begins to experience this conviction here. And in verses 3 and 4, here's what he says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The picture here is of a book. It's a big book. It's a massive book. And in that book is a record of every sin that you've ever committed. And it's so true that if God kept a record of every wrong thing that you ever said or did or thought, you would be totally lost. It would be a hopeless mess that you were in. Because the reality is that some of us may not have the best memories. We, we can't remember what we did yesterday. Even if we went back and we looked at our calendar, we couldn't remember what we actually did. But God's memory is perfect. You can't erase God's memory. You, you can't just go in here and kind of rip out the page of his book that, that, that he would have forgotten that it even happened. Forgiveness means to remove guilt after something wrong has been done. Another way to to think about forgiveness is to experience a pardon. It's not saying that something wrong hasn't happened. No, it's saying that something wrong has happened. But, But that when God forgives, he actually pays the price so that we can be pardoned, so that we can be free, set free. Now, what I find interesting here is the unique way that the psalmist describes forgiveness here. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where forgiveness is described this way. Here, forgiveness is described as being with God. It's kind of like God is just carrying this forgiveness around with him. It's like it's in his pocket or it's in this bag on his back. And he's just looking for an opportunity to give to somebody. It's this beautiful picture. God, with you there is forgiveness. That, that he has it, that he is just ready to give it out freely. He's looking for a chance. He's looking for an opportunity to give it. Now, what's the goal when God forgives us? I mean, our, our goal when we experience forgiveness is that we want to be free of guilt and shame. But, but God has a special and unique goal in mind when he forgives us. The psalmist tells us here that God's goal is that we should fear Him, that we should honor Him, that we should revere Him, that we should be in awe of Him. Again, to quote uh, Charles Spurgeon here, he says this, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His forgiving love. That's so true, right? Now, Spurgeon goes on and he says, Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. That when God forgives you, it leaves you utterly amazed. Why would he forgive someone like me? I don't deserve this. And so if you find yourself in the depths, maybe you feel like you have failed or maybe you're being reminded of your sin over and over and over again. Don't let that push you away from the Lord. Let that draw you to the Lord because he loves you. He carries forgiveness with him. He wants to give it to you as a good gift. The psalmist talks about being desperate. He talks about experiencing forgiveness. 
But in the third stanza here, he turns to hope. And in verses 5 and 6, we read this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. As we remember who God is and as we cry out to Him from the depths, we're reminded, we're remembering His merciful character and His forgiving heart. And all of that then encourages us in this hopeful expectation as we wait upon Him. If you go back to that image of being in the sea with those enormous waves that are just overwhelming you, It's crashing down upon you, taking you down into the depths. In the midst of those desperate circumstances, how do you wait on the Lord? Where do you find hope? What anchor is there for the soul in the midst of these turbulent times? Well, the psalmist points to the Bible. He points to the word of God and he says in verse 5, In his word I hope. In other words, we, we don't find our security in our feelings. Our feelings can change. They, they, they can come and go. We don't put our security in our own abilities because really, you know, that runs out pretty fast. We don't find security in our resources because our resources are so limited. We don't find security in the promises that we make to each other because a lot of times we don't have the ability to actually follow through and keep those promises. Our security is in God and in His Word. We hope and we believe in God. We trust and we expect that He is going to do what He says He will do. Friends, really the only way that we can trust God fully, the only way that our faith is going to grow, is when we go through difficult times and God proves Himself to us, that that He proves to be trustworthy. It's in the difficult times that God's Word becomes a a life preserver, a lifeboat for us, that it's as these waves are crashing down upon us that God's Word, it's like a big capsule that that just protects us, that keeps us safe, that, that, that we can experience rest and peace and security. Verse 6, the psalmist pictures himself as a watchman looking out on the horizon as he waits for the Lord with this eager expectation. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. It's this picture of a guy who's standing on top of a city wall, looking out on the distant horizon, looking out into the the land um, out uh, uh, in front of him. We have a picture of this that you could kind of imagine this here. But this watchman is looking. He is longing for something to happen, expecting for the sun to rise. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the very difficult and overwhelming circumstances in life, he knows that there is hope. He knows that there is a rescuer who's coming. He knows that there is redemption on the way. His eyes, his body, his very being are attentively watching and waiting for that moment. In a similar way, that's how the psalmist describes waiting on the Lord, that we have a hope. We are clinging to God's promises, that that we are not necessarily experiencing the full redemption just yet, but we know that it's coming. We know that God is going to show up, and when He comes, He is going to rescue. He is going to bring healing. Well, As we get to the last stanza of this psalm, the last two verses, this psalm moves from a testimony of one 
to call out to all of the people of God to have hope in the Lord. I picture the psalmist here and and being at one of these special festival celebrations there in Jerusalem. All of the Israelites are there. They're gathered together at the temple. He he looks out across this sea of people. And here's what he says in verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want you to notice two reasons here why we're told to wait and trust and long for and hope in the Lord. Reason number one is his steadfast love. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord is a word that has great meaning. It just has to do with God's covenant faithfulness, the faithful love that he has for his people. It's a word that describes the way that God made his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Noah, Moses, and David, and all the way through to Jesus. It's a word that expresses grace, unmerited favor, and love, all wrapped up into one thing. It's the kind of faithful love that God has. There's no promise of God that he's ever made that won't come true. Even though at times we might feel like we're in a season of waiting and we're wondering, well, where is God? Why is he allowing this? Will he ever show up? And we might even be saying, how long, O oh Lord? I mean, are you going to forget me forever? Sometimes we feel like that. But the promise of the scriptures and the thing that we need to remember is that God is unfailingly loving and faithful. The greatest example of this steadfast love that God has for his people is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there at the cross that we're reminded of the faithfulness of God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What what I love about that is that it is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon you and me, uh, how good we are, because we're not good. No, God loved us while we were still sinners. In fact, again, in Romans chapter 5, and this time in verse 10, we read this. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So if, we've ever, if you're ever struggling with this, if you're ever wondering, you know, does God really love me? Will God keep his promises? All you have to do is to look to the cross, to remember that God is faithful. That he will always be faithful. Part of his very nature is that he is a God of steadfast love. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the reasons for the people of God to have hope in the midst of waiting is because of his faithful, covenant, steadfast love. But then number two, we remember that he he has plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. What that word redemption means is to buy something back from worthless purposes and to make it to be used for useful purposes. 
kind of like somebody trying uh, something out that uh, taking something out of the garbage. So you go, you go over the garbage and you take it out of the garbage, you dust it off, you clean it up, you repurpose it, and you make it into something that is very valuable uh, that people of influence would use, which is exactly what it means to be a Christian. That, that's what we are. That's who we are in Christ. God takes our little lives. Most of us are not very impressive according to the earthly, worldly standards. But in God's eyes, we are his treasured possession. God takes us in, his lowly sta- in our lowly state. He buys us back from the trash heap of life. He repurposes us through the work and the sanctifying cleansing of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then he uses us for kingly purposes in his hands. What I find amazing about this redemption is that it's described as being plentiful. That it never gets low, that it never runs out. Last week, our family was in Indiana because we were picking up our son, Luke, for camp, from camp. Around, it was around lunchtime when we picked him up, and we were all really hungry, and so we found this restaurant that was nearby. It was an Amish restaurant, and it was open. And so we sit down and we have this meal together. And the way that they served was family style. And so they bring out all of these bowls and plates of food, just filled, heaping full of food. There's fried chicken and there's mashed potatoes and stuffing and gravy and corn and noodles. And and we start digging in and we start filling our plates full. And we go back for seconds and we go back for thirds. And some of us even went back for fourths. And after a while, we're just so stuffed. I mean, you can't eat anymore. And there is still a whole bunch of food that is left there on the plate. And, and they just kept bringing more stuff to us. And at one point, the waitress comes to our table and she says, Are you guys done? Would you like some pie? Now, for me, I'm like, pie? Yes, I would love a piece of pie. But I'm not able to eat another bite of food right now. I, I, I'm so stuffed, I can't. I, there's nowhere that I am going to fit another bite of food in my body. The psalmist gives us this great picture here and that there is no limit to God's supply. That there is plentiful redemption. Over the centuries, there have been millions of people coming to God for redemption over and over and over again. But the plate is still full. In fact, it looks the same way that it looked 2,000 years ago. It's not running low one bit. It is full. There, There is plenty Plenty of redemption from the Lord. Friends, the encouragement today from this psalm is to not grow weary in waiting on the Lord. It it, it might seem like, you know what, I mean, this is a really long line and I don't see any end in sight. It seems hopeless. It, 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 It will be worth the wait, though. God does see you. He hears you when he calls, when you call. He loves you. He wants to, to rescue you. He won't let you sink. Cry out to him. Hope in him. Trust in his word. And you will experience his faithful love and his plentiful redemption. May we be a people who walk with and are transformed by the living God of the universe as we wait with this eager expectation. Let's pray.